Good morning, Crossroads. How we doing? What a great time of celebration. If you would take your Bibles out with me and turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat back in front of you, under the seat in front of you. If you turn with us to page 571. Isaiah chapter 7, page 571. We're glad you're here this morning. We hope that you're planning to come to Christmas at Crossroads. We have six opportunities, six uh, services planned uh, on the 21st, 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. Uh, on the 21st and 22nd, it's at 7 p.m. On the 23rd and 24th, it's at 5 and 7 p.m. And we've got a great program planned. I had the, uh, usually the team, they, they kind of wait until they get everything together, give a rough idea, and then they show it. I got to see a little bit of it this week, just a little taste of it. It is going to be fantastic, and so you are not going to want to miss our Christmas at Crossroads services. We have uh, put a flyer for you to invite somebody. We actually have stamps able if you want to send that to someone. We have stamps at our information center ready to send those as postcards if you want, if you need that help, uh, we want to make sure there's no excuse that you can't invite someone uh, to come and join us for Christmas at Crossroads. It's going to be a fantastic time. Isaiah chapter 7 this morning. A as we dive in, I, I want to give a little disclaimer before we get here. Uh, if there are any kids in here, parents, I want to give you discretion. Uh, there will be a Santa spoiler coming in a few minutes. So if, if you're a kid and you know, you're worried about that with your kid, this is the time. We have great children's ministries here, and they will be safe there and never hear a spoiler like this. And so I want to give you that warning before we dive in. We're in a series called uh, Echoes of Hope because as we look at the Old Testament, we see the echoes of the promises of God into the New Testament story of Christ's coming. And this echoes of the hope of Jesus Christ really should echo in our lives today. It should echo in our hearts today as the echoes of the promises found in the Old Testament prophetic voices now still reverberate into our lives as we see the promises of God in reality. And so our hope should increase because we know that God keeps his promises. And that's the point of this entire series. But, but I realize that if we're really being honest, Christmas has a bit of a, a, a tension to it, if I, if I can say that. There's a bit of a tension, uh, a tension that lies at Christmas. There are some of you, man, you love the lights and the glitz and the glamour and the trees and the music and the Hallmark movies. You love Christmas. And this season is one of your favorite times of the year. You love the parties, you love the people, you love the personalities, and you love the presents. But there are many of us, this is a tense time. It's a struggling time. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but... But many scholars would say that there is a season of overt anxiety and hopelessness that rises at Christmas. In fact, I don't know if you know this, the National Center for, for, for Health and Statistics, they would say that over half of the American population suffers from moderate to excessive stress over the weeks leading up to Christmas. This can be a season of stress and hopelessness from difficult family members to maybe the death of a loved one that leaves a hole in your family this Christmas season. For others, maybe you feel a financial strain or maybe you feel alone during this time of year. Uh, everybody else has family around and, and you're just kind of alone and you're trying to figure out where life is taking you. Let's, let's face it, Christmas can truly be a season of complete and utter chaos. 
a season where it doesn't seem to go well. And what I know in the journey of this season of Christmas is that there's always something that wants to kind of take away the real meaning of the season. There's always a tension. There's always something that's at odds with this hope-filled season that we call Christmas. And I'm not just talking about the season, ruining the season. I'm talking about uh, really taking away the message what this really is about, and there's always something, there's always someone, there's always something that's trying to pull us away from the real intention of what this season is meant to be about. Now for some, it's not someone else or not something, maybe it's come from you. Maybe you're the one that actually makes Christmas so difficult, or maybe you've caused situations that have made Christmas so difficult, and I know I have in my life. In fact, I remember back when I started in ministry, I started at a great church in the Washington, D.C. area, and they brought me in as an intern, and uh, slowly I kind of worked my way into a position there, and the first position I had in vocational ministry uh, was that I was a children's pastor. I was a children's pastor of of a pretty large children's ministry. There were about six to seven hundred kids. There were three to four hundred uh, volunteers that served in the children's ministry there, and they threw me in there. It was like uh, a minnow with a shark. I had no clue what I was getting into. I was way in over my head, and I believe they did that kind of intentionally to train me and teach me. And so I was in this children's ministry, and one of the jobs that I had was overseeing the volunteers and all the children's ministry that happened on the weekend and midweek uh, services. But, but one of the things I had to do is, is on Sunday morning, I had a, what was called a junior church program. And there was about 150 third through sixth graders who would meet and gather for a service during service times. And, uh, and we set it up just like a service. We had a praise team. We had kids that did the offering. We had kids that were on the welcome team. We have kids that did skits. We had kids that oversaw games. I mean, we had the whole thing with these kids. Kids led it. And uh, my job was really to teach the lesson or to, to bring the message. And so I would do little sermon series with these kids. Well, one, one uh, Christmas, I was doing a sermon series about Christmas. And I was talking about Christmas. And I decided to share a story about how I came to know the truth about Santa. So I told them the story. Thursday six graders. I said, I remember I was about eight years old, and uh, that Christmas, the cool thing to have was a scooter. It was when scooters were kind of coming out, and they were the cool thing. Bikes were kind of taking a, a step back, and man, if you could upgrade from a skateboard to a scooter, man, you were made. You were cool. And so I really wanted a scooter. And so I begged for this blue scooter with some black trim, just looked really cool. And so I was like, Mom, I really, I need to have that scooter. Like, I can't live without this, right, kids in that day. And so uh, I remember that night, Christmas Eve, I went to bed, and I was excited. And the rule was in my house is Santa doesn't come until you're asleep. Now, I know what that means today. It's because parents want to have a little extra time to hang out. And so you tell your kids, hey, you got to go to bed, time to go to bed. And so at 8, 30, 9 o'clock, I'm like, I'm in bed, it's time. And so I'm excited, I'm kind of rolling back and forth over, I can't sleep, I'm so excited thinking that I'm going to get this, uh, this scooter. Now, I didn't have much growing up, uh, we weren't very wealthy, my mom worked at Walmart, my dad died when I was 8 years old, we lived in a, a row house in the city, I grew up in the hood, true, if I took you there today, you would say, Dave, you, you really are the hood. The only way you would know that is to see where I grew up, or if you heard me rap, and you know there's ghetto in me, right? There's a little ghetto. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hip-hop all the way through and through. And so uh, I grew up, and so anything that happened in our house, you could hear it. Anything that happened in the neighbor's house, you could hear. And so um, I remember I was, I was laying there, the covers were up, and I was kind of tossing and turning. And about midnight, I woke up, and I heard a noise. 
and I heard kind of a clump. And I thought maybe it was the, the big man in the red suit. And so I pulled the cover just slightly back because I didn't want to be seen. And I looked kind of over the brim of the covers. And what I saw, and I, my bedroom was right next to the stairwell, I looked out and there I saw my mom. And my mom was carrying a blue scooter with black trim. Now there were two feelings that, that kind of stirred up inside of me. First of all, I'm getting the scooter that I wanted. Awesome. The second one was, wait a minute. This isn't coming from Santa. Santa is not delivering this. I wrote a letter to Santa asking for this. My mom is the one that's getting me this. So I go back to sleep with this, this thought in my head. I wake up the next morning. I go down the stairs, and there's a scooter signed by Santa. But I knew the truth. Now, let's fast forward. Fit 14 years later, I am giving a sermon and using this illustration with a group of third through sixth graders, having no clue of the consequences and so I share the story, I give the illustration, I end the service, I go home, great time together. The next day in my mailbox are literally letter after letter after letter. Calls and emails come in. Uh, Dave, you have just ruined my kid's Christmas. I've had to spend all my Sunday describing the reality of what takes place. And so I wrote a letter back and emails back and made calls and I said, well, why should you be lying to your kids? What kind of parent are you that you would lie to your kids about the topic of Santa? Now, I, I didn't do that, otherwise I wouldn't be here today. Um, but I thought it, and there was a bit of pride in me to think, that's right, my job as a pastor is to tell the truth no matter what the cost. But man, can I tell you, there was turmoil inside of me because I realized I had brought a lot of anxiety, a lot of hopelessness, a lot of worry to a bunch of kids who had no clue what was happening that Christmas. I created a great deal of anxiety. You know what, for you and I, hopelessness can disguise itself in nostalgia. What do I mean? We can go through the season all nostalgic, but in the end feel a weight of hopelessness that comes as a result of this season. I want to look at this story in Isaiah chapter 7. If you've been around the church world or you've celebrated Christmas before, you're going to know one verse from this story. But it's the background of this story that really brings it to life, that really gives us insight into how we see God working in a hope-filled way in the midst of of a chaotic moment. Let me give you some background. Isaiah is a prophet who is writing on behalf of God. Isaiah is probably one of the most well-known prophets. In fact, he is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. He is the most quoted book besides the book of Psalms in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus, when he preached his very first sermon on earth, chose to preach it from the book of Isaiah. He laid out a scroll and he read from Isaiah. Isaiah is a well-known prophet. He was a counselor to kings. He was a man of God. He was well-respected. And we find in chapter 6 his call into ministry. Remember, God gives him a vision of heaven. And it says he saw the Lord high and lifted up the cherubim surrounding the throne. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's found in Isaiah chapter 6. And, and God asks a question, who will go for me? And Isaiah responds, here am I, send me. And God says, all right, you want to go for me, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go and cast judgment. You're going to go and cast judgment. Now, specifically, Isaiah was a prophet along with, uh, with Hosea, with Micah, as well as Amos. He prophesied during the same time, but his focus was on the southern kingdom, Judah. Now, why is that important? If you remember, this is a little bit of history, but if you allow this history to take root, it will really bring this, this story to life. If you remember uh, history, uh, biblical history, Remember the first king of Israel was Saul. 
God was reigning over the people and they wanted a king like other nations and so God gave them Saul. Saul then was followed by David, a man after God's own heart. David then had a son, Solomon. Solomon followed after God until the end of his life and he made some grave mistakes in his life and so God, in the consequence of those mistakes, splits the kingdom of Israel in two. The northern kingdom becomes Israel and the southern kingdom becomes Judah. Judah's capital is Jerusalem and Israel's capital is Samaria. And so when you read the Old Testament, you find writings to kings from Israel and writings to kings from Judah. It is all Israel, but it's divided now into two kingdoms. During this moment, Assyria, Assyria, is the world empire. But there's multiple little kingdoms under them. And some of those kingdoms are the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, and the kingdom of Syria. That's where we pick up the story in Isaiah chapter 7. We find Isaiah thrust into a volatile political situation in the nation of Judah. He is in a volatile political situation here in Isaiah chapter 7. Take a look with me, verse 1. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, so we have this king of Syria, Rezin, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel. So the king of Israel is Pekah. Um, by the way, Pekah means uh, open-eyed. It's where we get our word peekaboo. I made that up, but it sounded, it, 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 it does mean open-eyed, and uh, maybe we got peekaboo from it, but Pekah means open-eyed, and so he's the king of, of Israel. They come up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in the league with Ephraim, Ephraim is the old name for Israel, the heart of Ahaz, Ahaz is the king of Judah, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashuv, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramiah, because Syria and Ephraim and the son of Ramiah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabael as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is a son of Ramaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, the place of the dead, the grave, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Here is a situation that we find Isaiah in. We find Isaiah in a very difficult situation. What do I mean? What's happening is King Ahaz is being pressed on every side. Judah finds itself in a hopeless situation. This is point one in our notes. We find a hopeless situation. A hopeless situation. Now, what's happening? Well, follow me for a moment. Here's the history. 
Assyria is the world empire. They're, they're, they're overtaking the world. They have control over the known world. There's these small kingdoms under them that are kind of paying taxes to them. Three of them are Syria, not Assyria, but now Syria, Israel, and Judah. So what happens? Israel and Syria get together and say, hey, why don't we form an alliance and go do battle against the world empire? And so they come to Judah and they say, Judah, will you join us in the battle against Assyria? And Judah says, no, we're not joining it. We don't have the manpower. We don't have the military might. We're just not going to do that. We're going to be destroyed. Assyria is a big, bad nation. They, they chew up and spit out enemies left and right. We're not doing it. So Syria and Israel decide, okay, well, let's do this. Instead of attacking Assyria, let's go after Judah. Let's attack them. Let's put the king that we want in the place of Ahaz. Then they have to do what we want, and then we'll team up and destroy the, the big enemy, Assyria. And so they're trying to form an alliance. The alliance then is, let's go attack Judah. And that's where we find verse 1. That's a setting, right? Is, is it says, Syria and Israel are coming against Judah and King Ahaz. We find a very hopeless situation. Ahaz is surrounded by, by enemies from all sides, from all angles. There is no way out of this situation but with military war. There is no way to get out of this situation because he's encircled with a machine that is ruthless and willing to gobble up their city. In fact, already, before we get to this passage, they have already taken 250,000 people from Judah as captives. And so they're already losing without even starting the war. This is a hopeless situation. Ahaz is pressed in. For you and I today, we face at times what seems to be hopeless situations. We all face them. Face situations where it seems the odds are stacked against us, that there's no way that we're ever going to escape, right? For some of you, maybe this morning, there is a darkness of uncertainty about your future. And you're looking into the future and you're like, man, I don't know what's going to happen with my job. I don't know what's going to happen with my family. I don't know what's going to happen with my kids. And you're looking at the future and you're looking at your situation. You're saying, listen, there's some darkness that seems to be reigning. There's some uncertainty that seems to be looming. For others of you, maybe there's a fear of insecurity that's gripping your heart, right? Insecurity. And so you, you work a job and you're doing all of these things and you try to be at home and you try to be functional, but inside there's insecurity that's gripping you. And, and, and everything that you're doing is really based upon a performance. I'm doing this, I'm doing that, but I'm performing because I just don't want anybody to disappoint it with me. And so for you, there's an insecurity that grips you. For others, maybe it's a past sinful choice that you made that continues to label you, continues to mark you, continues to, to be uh, what comes to mind when you think of yourself, right? And you look back and there's no way to return, there's no way to undo it, yet it keeps following you like, like a scarlet letter that's marked on you. And you just wish you could overcome it, you wish you could redefine it, you wish you could go back and change it, and you can't, and it keeps rearing its ugly head. For some, maybe there's a season where you feel lonely, there's somebody that's not there that you wish was there. Maybe for you it's, man, I, I'm looking for a spouse and I'm praying about a spouse. Or, or maybe it's kids that you taught well, but they've rebelled against you. And you're like, God, why are they leaving? Why are they running from this? And you feel overwhelmed with that. You feel hopeless in that situation. Maybe it's loss. There's someone that you love that's no longer here, and you feel the depth of that, that pain of loss. And in this season, there's a bit of hopelessness because there's going to be a hole at the table. There's going to be a hole at the table this Christmas. 
Maybe for you it's, it's worry about your job or worried about your marriage. It just doesn't seem to be going the way you think it should be going. Maybe it's a health of a loved one, a cancer diagnosis. Right? There's a myriad of things that could be for us what presses us in like Ahaz that can be hopeless situations where we feel there are no way out. That's Ahaz. But this follows, this hopeless situation follows with what we see as a real human response. A real human response. This is point two. A hopeless situation that leads to a very human response. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at verse two. It says, when the house of David, that's Judah, was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, that's Israel, the heart of Ahaz with the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. It says here, Ahaz feels overwhelmed humanly. He feels so overwhelmed along with the people that they are like trees being shaken by the wind. They're being tossed to and fro. They're so overwhelmed humanly that they're just like these trees being blown around. Now, when I read this, I think back, uh, it was a little bit before this time of the year, I think back um, about six years ago, um, before we moved here to Ohio, we lived in Maryland, and uh, our property had about 160 trees. In fact, I counted all of them. And we didn't have a forest. They were just individual trees. And what it was, there they were those, those cheaper farm trees that they put in developments just to make it look good, but they really don't have deep roots. They fall down very quickly and easily. And so we had 160 of these trees spread throughout. And I counted them because I would go through mowers left and right because I would hit these stumps and not even see them. And so I counted them. I wanted to know how many trees I had. And so I had 160 trees uh, on our property, kind of individual. They're around the border of the property and these type of things. So, so there was uh, one moment six years ago in, in Maryland. Now, how the weather works in Maryland is usually snow comes maybe beginning of December. It'll snow and melt, snow and melt, snow and melt. And then, and then February is really a heavy snow time, January and February. That's when the real snow happens. I've learned here in Ohio, you just throw your hands in there and go, oh, maybe, maybe, who knows. It could be sun, it could be snow. They'll tell you it's two inches, it's five inches. They'll tell you it's five inches, it's one inch. I mean, just have no clue. I've lear- I'm learning this. And so you learn to go with the flow a little bit more. But there's, it's a little bit more predictable. And, uh, well, there was this one season six years ago where it snowed at the very end of October, which is unheard of. It was still a bit warm. In fact, the leaves were still on the trees. The trees had not yet dropped their leaves. And so the snow came, and it was kind of a heavy, wet snow because the ground level was still warm. And so the snow come, came, and we were expecting it. We didn't know what, what really to expect. We didn't know there was snow that was in the forecast. And so that night, we went to bed, and uh, Alice and I were in bed. And in the middle of the night, we hear these noises like pop, crack, pop, pound. I mean, these noises that were just, it sounded like a war zone. So Allison's like, Dave, you got to check w- what this is. And I'm like, I got it, babe. I put on my ninja suit. I go out with my, I go out with my baseball bat and my two guns. That's what you got. That's what I got. I mean, and so I go down. I'm looking around. You know, I check the house. I come back to the bedroom. I'm like, babe, I don't see anything. There's, everything's fine. And we just keep hearing this pop. It was as if we're in the middle of a war zone. But I was convinced no one's going to attack us. So I told, told Alice, I was like, babe, don't worry. No one's going to come after us. Like, what do we offer anybody that's, like, if, if Korea is attacking us, they're not coming to our house, I bet. So, so anyway, we, we go to bed. We wake up. We look out the window. And literally, our yard looks like a war zone. When I say a war zone, I, I can't describe it. There was about 60 trees that just dropped, boom, pop, pop, everywhere. That was the popping we were hearing, branches just coming off. Our yard was filled with these trees that were dropped. I mean, I was so overwhelmed, I didn't even know what to do. So I got to my garage, and I get my chainsaw, which was about that size. 
And Allison says, Dave, have you ever used that chainsaw? Do you know how to use a chainsaw? I don't know, babe. I really don't know. I'm going to figure it out, though. And so I go outside, and I'm, I'm, you know, I start the chainsaw. I try, and I, I realize this is going to not be a, a day project. This is going to be weeks before I clean up this mess that's in my yard. And uh, God provided. Out of the blue, here comes a guy with a trailer, big old chainsaws. And he comes over, and he goes, hey, sir, would you mind if I cut up the wood and take it? Uh, for you? Would you mind if I do that? I was like, well, how much would you charge me? He's like, no, 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 I just want, want the wood. I was like, it's all yours. I'm going to go in. I'm going to have, I'm going to go in and get a Diet Pepsi. I'm going to put my feet up and I'm going to get rid of these trees. I mean, what a brilliant moment, right? That's the image that I have in this moment. I mean, it's like, here is Ahaz, here are the people of Judah, and they're just ready to drop. I'm done. I'm finished. I'm complete. I can't go on. This is a ho- helpless situation, a hopeless situation, and this is the human response is, I just can't do it. I just can't overcome this. Folks, you and I can feel the same exact way. In fact, I would put us in three categories. When circumstances come from many of us, uh, we feel a feeling uh, of freezing, right? For us, our response is to freeze. When situations of life start to press us in, we get frozen. We freeze in place. We freeze. This is kind of that sub-point in your outline there. We freeze. What do I mean by that, we freeze? Is we begin to kind of just, just become numb. We get that feelingless feeling like we just can't do anything. We try to pray. We try to read the Bible. It just doesn't seem to work, right? And we're crying out, but nothing's happening. And so we turn to potentially addictions or habits. We, we turn to, to, to something that will kind of medicate our minds. And I'm not talking about medicine. I'm talking about in, in an emotional way. Medicate our minds to, to be distant. We begin to freeze, right? For some of us, uh, we, we turn to a nap. We go to bed. We just try to sleep it off. We try to watch movies. We try to, right? And our, our, really what's happening is we're trying to ignore the situation. We're frozen in time because of the situation. For some of us, we don't freeze, but we fade. We fade. We don't freeze, we fade. Now, I use the word fade intentionally. That's the second word here, fade. I use the word fade intentionally because we, know, we are Christians. We don't run from God, and we know that we can't escape God. And so we don't run, we just begin to fade. And so we begin to fade from prayer. We begin to fade from the Bible. We begin to fade from the community of people that can encourage our faith. We begin to fade from church. We begin to slowly fade. And what we do is we fade to something. Whenever you fade, you always fade to something else. And so for some, I'm just going to make my life busy. I'm going to get busy, and that busyness is going to distract me. And so I get involved in this activity and that activity. And what I'm really doing is trying to, trying to take care of a situation that I'm not really dealing with. And I'm using busyness as an excuse for others the way you fade is by complaining and so it just becomes a complaint session that constantly right just a perpetual complaint session it never is solving the situation it's never directly impacting what's happening but just all this is bad and all this is bad and all my marriage is this and my kid is this and this and that's what you're doing is actually fading You're, you're fading in complaints for others of us we don't freeze or fade we instinctively try to fix things what do I mean? Well, for, I don't know about you, but this is my default. I don't freeze or fade. My default is to fix. Now, I've shared with you before, I am the least handy guy probably in this building. I can't fix anything. I try. Um, in, in fact, when I have a situation in my home, I call our facilities manager, Greg Croft is here. In my phone, he is under speed dial, and his name is Rent-A-Husband. <laughs> and so I call my Rent-A-Husband, hey, Greg, can you come help me look good before my wife and let, let me be a part of it and I can watch you do your thing and I'll hand you a tool or something. 
and uh, he'll give me some insight as to how to accomplish it. I'm not a handy guy, but when it comes to things that happen where you feel pressed in, I like to take things and fix it. I like to solve this problem. I like to figure it out in, a, in human form, in human strength, and so I try to fix it. By the way, this is exactly what Ahaz does. Ahaz attempts to fix this on his own. In 2 Kings chapter 17, we see that what Ahaz does is in the middle of Syria and Israel coming against Judah, is he begins to try to make alliance with the world empire of Syria. He tries to now get real political and solve this on his own. In fact, notice verse 3. It says, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz. Where was Ahaz at? Notice, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Notice how specific that is. Ahaz was reinforcing his water supply. Ahaz was preparing for war against Israel and Syria. Ahaz had a plan. He was fixing it. He was feeling hopeless and helpless, and yet he was fixing the situation. There is a hint here that he is a fixer. But the rest of Judah, they didn't know what to do. There was no hope. And this is the point. Hopeless situations... Our human responses, some of us freeze, some of us fade, some of us fix it. But then God in his grace provides hope. That's our third point, and that is this, hope it provided. Hope provided. God, in his grace, provides hope. Now how does he do it? He does it through the prophet Isaiah. Verse 3, and the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashuv. Now you and I, we read that and would skip over that. But let me tell you, that stands out in the Hebrew. Why? Because the name of the son of Isaiah is very important. His name is Shir Jashuv. Shir Jashuv in Israel, or in Hebrew, means you're still my people. There's still a remnant. In other words, God says, Isaiah, go to Ahaz, take with you your son, whose name means that you're still my people. Why? Because I want to bring hope to them, and the hope is that they're still my people. I'm still in charge of them. I still got this. They can trust me. There is still a remnant here that belong to me, and I will not forsake them. So God sends Isaiah with his son, Shir Jashub, which means you are still my people. But it goes further than this. Take a look. It goes further. He, he goes, and notice verse 4. And say to Ahaz, be careful. Be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Notice these words. These are all commands. He says, calm down, be quiet. Then he goes negative. Do not fear, do not let your heart faint. I don't know if you've ever done that as a parent. right? You look at your kids and they come to you and they're all frantic about something and you're like, calm down. Calm down. Take a breath. That's what God is saying here. God is saying through Isaiah to Ahaz, hey, hey, take a breath. I've got this. Calm down. Do not fear. Do not let your heart faint. Why? Because those two nations, Syria and Israel, they're smoking stumps. They're firebrands. No, no, what does that mean? They're not trees that are burning in fire. They're smoke. They're all smoke. There's no fire to them. They're nothing. All they are are talk. They're all smoke. There's nothing they can do to you. You need to trust me. What God is doing is saying there is something bigger than your fear. There, there is something bigger than your fear that calls your faith to rise in this moment. There is something. He, he's saying, listen, Ahaz, you know that Pekah has jurisdiction in Israel. You know that Rezin has jurisdiction in Syria. But I have jurisdiction over the world. And Syria and Israel, they're just stumps that are dead on the ground burning 
and they're not even fire, they're smoke. That's all they are. You can trust me. He's saying you don't have to investigate your defenses. You don't have to make heroic decisions. You don't have to form a questionable alliance. No, instead, trust me in this moment. Believe that I have control. In fact, I want to show you this. This is eye-opening because God responds by taunting the enemy. And this is really cool. I just want to show you this. Notice verse, verse 6. He's quoting what they're saying about Judas. He says, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabiel. Now, here's what's interesting. So they're going to try to come and set up their own king. Do you know what Tabiel means in Hebrew? Our English can't really form this, but it's really kind of cool. Tabiel in Hebrew means good for nothing. God says, you know what they're saying to you? They're saying, hey, we're going to go set up our king. We're going to take care of Ahaz. We're going to wipe him out, and we're going to set up our own king, but his name is going to be good for nothing. God is taunting the enemy. He's saying, listen, there's nothing they're going to be able to do do to you. In fact, verse 7, it shall not stand. It will not come to pass. God says, you are my people. I have this. He is providing hope. And he ends this declaration of hope in verse 9 with a powerful statement. Notice verse 9. It says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now, this is powerful. Don't miss this. He takes one word and changes its form, and it's, it's, it's poetic. It's a play on words. And what it literally says is if you don't believe in this moment, if, you don't, if you're not firm in this moment, then you're never going to be firm in the next moment. He says if you don't believe in this moment that I'm in control, then, then the next moment comes, you're not going to believe that's true. You're not going to trust me. So he's calling faith out of, out of Ahaz. He's saying, listen, do you trust that God is in control, that hope can rise If you can't be firm now, you're not going to be firm tomorrow when something greater might happen. He says, so let your faith rise. Believe. Believe that I have control. Now, the question is, how are they going to stand? How are they going to stand firm? Now, you, you would think, if God ends this here, if this is the message to Ahaz, it would be like going to somebody who breaks their leg, and they're laying on the basketball court and saying, Get up and play. It, it would be like someone in a car accident who can't move the car saying, well, just drive away, go home. How do you stand when in a hopeless situation? How do you stand firm? And God knows that. God understands that the only way hope really works is that hope has to be connected in something, an object that's bigger than the circumstance. God understands that hope has to be connected in something greater than the circumstance we're facing, right? If you have a boat, you don't tie your boat up to a twig. You don't tie your boat up to a pet dog. Now, there's some dogs that maybe could handle that. You tie it up to a pier, to a dock, to a tree, right? You tie up your boat. You don't, you don't right? You, you don't, you've got to tie something to an object that's greater in order for there to truly be hope and be immovable. So God is saying, all right, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you an object that you can trust, And it's going to be my promise. So God understands this. Notice what he says, verse 10. This is beautiful. Don't miss it. He says, you're in a desperate situation. Here is where you can stand. Here's why you can stand. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. So God comes and says, Ahaz, ask anything of God. As high as the heavens or as low as the grave. Now I want to pause here for a moment. Have you ever been in a situation where you ask God for a sign. If I'm being honest, I have. 
there have been times where I've, I'm in a situation that's kind of pressing against me, and I'm like, God, would I believe in you, I trust in you, would you just give me a sign? Would you allow a lightning bolt to strike my yard so I know that you hear me? Or, God, I, I, I believe you, I trust you, would you just allow, if this is what you want, would you allow my boys to walk in the room right now and go, oh, Father, you are the greatest man on earth? Now, that has never happened. Um, never had a lightning bolt. Certainly, God is big enough to use a sign to get our attention. He does it all through the Bible. But God comes to Ahaz and says, Ahaz, you can ask for any sign. Anything. You name it. And Ahaz responds by saying, no, 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 I'm not going to test God. Now, don't think Ahaz is being religious here. Ahaz is being prideful and arrogant. Because what Ahaz has already done is made a plan. And he's going to follow through with his plan. And he's saying, God, I don't need your sign. I'm going to do what I want to do. He is rejecting God's attempt to bring a sign. So what does God do? And if there's any moment where you see the grace of God, it is the fact that God still responds with a sign. Uh, we come to verse, uh, verse 13, and it says, Hear then, O Israel. So Isaiah turns to the crowd that's there. And he says, verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The Lord will be gracious. He will then give you a sign, even if the king doesn't want it. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means literally the strong God is with us. Here's the sign. There will be a virgin who will give birth to a child, and that child's name will be that God is with you. God is with you. The strong God is with you. Now many scholars believe this happened specifically for Ahaz, and so there was a handmaiden. The word virgin can be handmaiden, although I would argue that they understood a handmaiden to always be a virgin because that would be a handmaiden that would then get married, and there was an expectation of that. But, but, but they would get married, and there was a child that was supposed to be a promise to Ahaz in that day. But we fast forward 730 years, and the disciple... The, the Apostle Matthew writes in his gospel this account. And he talks about a situation very similar to Ahaz, a situation that seems hopeless, a situation where it seems the walls of life are caving in, and it's happening to Joseph, Joseph a carpenter, who is betrothed to a woman, a virgin, who is now pregnant. And he has to make a decision of what to do with her. And this is what is said. You know this story probably well. Right, an angel appears to Joseph, and it says in Matthew 1, it says, but as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. There it is. Do not fear. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus means the Lord is salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. This is the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Notice the difference between Ahaz and Joseph. Joseph did as the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. 730 years after Isaiah, what happens? God shows up in a crisis moment, and God says, you'll have a son. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. The promise to Ahaz, God with us. Now, you might say, Dave, that's great. What about us? Here we are, 
2,000 years after what Matthew wrote, and here we are living our lives, and this is great for them, but what about us? What, what, about, what about my friend who's walking through cancer? What, what about my situation with my work? What, what, about my, what, what about my own children who have rebelled? What about my financial crisis that I seem to be in? What about my marriage that seems to be shaking? What about that situation? Dave? What, what, how does that affect me? Can I tell you, and this is number four and lastly, for you and I today, our hope is even more assured. Hope assured. Hope assured. You might say, wait, how, how can you say that? Hope is more sure for you and I today. Get this. If you don't get anything else, get this. The hope that you and I have is more sure today than they had in the day of Ahaz. The hope that you and I can have in impossible situations, in hopeless situations, is more sure than Matthew had when Jesus first came on the scene. The hope that you and I have is more sure today than ever in history. Why? Because God isn't just with us. What do I mean? Well, Paul the Apostle writes in Colossians 1 that there was this mystery that was hidden for the ages. In fact, there was not a single prophet that spoke this mystery. Not a single prophet that prophesied this would happen. But he writes this in Colossians chapter 1 that says the gospel will come to the Gentiles and this is what will take place. I want to read it to you. Colossians 1.27, we're almost finished. It says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glories of this mystery. What is the mystery? What is this mystery revealed? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What is our hope? What is our hope? In hopeless situations, in difficult scenarios, in, in moments where it seems like life is squeezing us, where do we find our hope? Our hope is not out there. If you're a follower of Christ, our hope is in here. If you're a follower of Christ, Christ in you. The, the Spirit of Christ through the Holy Spirit lives in us and now everything that happens is a hope for glory. Meaning, I can know that whatever's happening in my life, wherever it is I feel squeezed, there is glory that God is trying to bring through it. I can be confident of that. That means my hope is greater than the hope of Ahaz or even Matthew. Why? Because Christ isn't just with me. Christ is in me. I don't know if there's any greater truth in the entire Bible than to know that Christ is not just with me, he's in me, right? Abraham, God's with you. Moses, God is with you. Joshua, God is with you. Joseph, God is with you, right? We, we go down the road. Isaiah, David, God is with you. Israel, Judah, God is with you. New Testament, Emmanuel, God with us. We come after Jesus goes to a cross and dies. He walks into a grave to prove the sacrifice was enough. He ascends into heaven, and then he, he, he sends what he calls the helper, the Holy Spirit. And now Paul writes, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You can bank your life on it. If you're a follower of Christ, you can bank your life on the glory yet to be revealed and the circumstances seems to be weighing you down. Where's your hope? Where does your hope lie? Is it in circumstances? Is it in your family? Can I tell you, the moment things start to shake, you're gonna go chaotic. Is it in your kids? Man, when they start to rebel, what, what happens, right? Or is it in your job? What happens when they, they, they take cuts? Right? If you put your hope in anything else, there's despair. But that despair is swallowed up when our hope is in a person of Jesus Christ, is in the reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory, that, that God is working out his glory in whatever circumstance I'm facing. 
Let me ask you this morning, where is your hope? Have you trusted in him? Is he your hope this Christmas season? Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? And we're going to end just by ref, uh, refraining this song that we sang, that he, he is what we need. He is sufficient. He is an awesome God. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Emmanuel, for you and I, Emmanuel isn't just Christ with us, it's Christ in us. If you're here and you don't know Christ, maybe, maybe you, you would say, you know what, I don't know if Christ is in me. I don't know if I have that hope. Today, you can know that hope. And that hope is not wishful thinking. That hope is absolute security. We would love to talk with you at Next Steps to the right as you leave. We have people ready to pray for you and talk with you. Not to have you join a religion, but to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The God who came and died for you. If you're here and you know Christ, maybe you're walking through difficult circumstances. Walking through difficult circumstances. Next Steps, we love to help you.